Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. So let's open it up for questions. So I got one from Dorothy. Okay, so there you go. Hi, Bill. So I was just saying that I've been missing your writing on uh, on Toothdig, and I'm hoping that you're going to be writing for Sheer Post now. I just had a piece uh, out about the uh, Manhattan DA's case. It's on Salon, it's on Bill Moyers, it's on Alternate, it's on a variety of I'll different... I'll have to just Google you. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's your Because uh, sure. I send out a newsletter every day with links oh. to articles. Okay. But I, I came in late, so I don't know, did you mention um, the threat for March 4th? I didn't uh, cover March 4th. I don't think any of us talked about March 4th. March 4th is the day when the president used to be inaugurated before the 20th Amendment. And um, these QAnon people think that it's the touchstone, that it is the signal for a new uh, a, a new storm, right? So it's something to look out for and be aware of. They're also threatening the State of the Union. The new police chief said that they can't take down any barricade or send any National Guard home because they're threatening to come in and kill Congress people during, you know, for the State of the Union message. Right. All right. Thank you, Dorothy. Okay. Professor Joseph Dowd. Hello. So my question is, is one that I guess is, is important to me as a, as a university instructor and an academic. Maybe I, I don't keep up with this stuff as much as some other people here, but I do know that um, polls are showing that there's a, uh, or not polls, um, other data sh showing that there's been a real shift or a, an acceleration of a shift uh, in terms of party affiliation in this country, where more and more um, people who are college educated tend to be Democrats, and more and more people who are not college educated tend to be Republicans. And I, you know, it's it's easy for progressives um, or liberals of any kind to be kind of smug about that, right? We're, of course, because we're the smart ones, right? So of course, college educated people would go for us and, and dumb people would go for Republicans. But I, you know, I find this incredibly worrisome. And certainly, you know, if you're any kind of progressive, you know, you, you, you care about the interests of people who are perhaps less educated, perhaps lower class. And also, my question is kind of, what do we do about that? Because I think it partly contributes to, you know, the rise of conspiracy theories and fake news on the right, it, it may to some extent, I think, m much more worrisomely, one thing that's going on is you know that the people who were responsible for the insurrection at the Capitol, yes, um, they were attacking democracy. But uh, another layer of that is that they perceived themselves to kind of represent this kind of silent majority of true Americans, 
right? And whether they were right about that is, is irrelevant. They, they perceive themselves that way, and they perceive themselves as confronting a, like, basically liberals who just didn't represent that silent majority and they, whom they simply could not relate to. And I think that kind of problem uh, will get worse as kind of the, the educational divide between left and right grows. So I'm just wondering what people's thoughts are on that and, and what, we can, what we can do about that. You want to take that, Bill, or you? Or no, I think Alan? Alan would be best for that. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of that. First of all, I do want to point out that the Democratic Party, again, before the rise of the Sanders movement and the strengthening of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, did very little to protect American democracy in any proactive way, at least from 20, 20, 2000, when we had basically a stolen election right, in Florida. I mean, in any other country in the world, we would have had in the American press, you know, this was stolen in the candidate's brother's, you know, state where the person counting the votes was one of his chairs of his election in the state, Catherine Harris, if you remember it all. And, and there was Al Gore gaveling down the basically Black Caucus objecting to a stolen election, and very little was done. You even had uh, you'd, you'd get sometimes candidates challenged from, you know, the Clintonite mainstream wing of the party, and they would confess they didn't want to really emphasize this because it would discourage people from voting, was their, was their defense of it. And it wasn't really until Trump's victory and the whole brouhaha about Russian interference, you actually got the balance of the Democratic Party across the country actually weighing in with pro-democracy advocates of which an organization like PDA and the other rest of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has always been against Citizen United. You know, these have been movements been driven by the progressive left. And it really wasn't until the 2016 election that you saw any movement from the mainstream of the Democratic Party to support democracy. Now, you ask a question about the support for the Republican Party by, uh, <laughs> what did Donald Trump once say, I love the, the poorly educated? Um, <sighs> You know, one of the wisest commentaries I heard about the 2020 election was from a radical commentator named Gerald Horn on a show uh, around the time of the conventions. And you know, it's, it, it, it was said with a sort of a gleeful cynicism. You know, we know how the election is going to turn out. It's going to come down to a handful of states. It's going to be super close in uh, 35 to 40 to 44 of the states. There won't really be close elections. So everything will be focusing on these particular states. Everybody who's honest with themselves about it knows it's going to go this way. Now, there was a time in, you know, with the six weeks leading up to November where people thought the Democrats would do substantially better than they ended up doing and it wouldn't be that close. But Gerald Hearn turned out to be right. It was razor thin in a certain set of states. And it came down to turnout of this constituency. And if this national constituency was one or two percent higher or one or two percent lower, it was going to swing the election. And he honed in on exactly which constituents. And, you know, it's, it's like a book you could read in advance. Okay, so where are these constituents that are turning to the Republican Party when the Democratic Party is still claiming to be more of a party in support of the working class than the Republican Party is? And I do believe it is. I don't think it's as egregiously horrible for the working class as the Republican Party. But let's also be honest, it's basically been crap for the working class. And so you can't really blame the American working class 
for not being enthusiastic about the economic policies of the Democratic Party. And even now, where what's laid out by the Biden administration and House and Senate leadership is pretty decent, it doesn't look like much of it's really ever going to get through. The hope here is that, I mean, I think, I think the relief package is decent, but it's not noticeably, grandly better like what Roosevelt did in 1933 for the American people than what's come before. It's not a game changer like that, nor is it a game changer like Reagan sort of provided in the other direction in 1980. Joe Biden says he wants to do big. It's not that big. So here's the thing. If the Democratic Party can actually adjust to having the kind of incentives and national infrastructure project that's somewhat on the table, it's going to be put forward more in the Recovery Act that's going to come forward. If you can actually get a recharge of things like manufacturing. See, on either coast, manufacturing, for instance, is not a big political appeal as a subject matter. In the middle of the country and in the Rust Belt, it's a huge issue. The trade deals, which won Donald Trump the election, arguably, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, right? Not that big a deal on either coast. Huge talking points in these places. So the Democratic Party has a chance right now coming out of this crisis to make the kinds of infrastructural investments in the now depleted Rust Belt states that could transform American politics if the working classes there and a diverse working class can see investment that will really produce jobs in regions that are economically depressed, those would be game changers. But that's incumbent upon a Democratic Party actually caring, really caring about the welfare other than their major donors. And I do believe the Sanders wing and the squad wing of the party 100% their hearts in it fully. The Clintonite DLC wing of the party, not so much. I do think that's really key. And I do think now the Democratic Party has learned its lesson around democracy. And we have to keep on them about it. But I do think they are now actively advocating for democracy. So winning elections, winning over the not well-educated working class people who've been swinging to the Republican Party is possible, especially if those jobs turn out to be union jobs. Thank you, Alan. And I wanted to respond to Joseph's question because I think this is where the media also comes in. So basically, this is always there. There's a cult. It's like they have a cult of people with false beliefs and some of these and the hatred of liberals. This is almost a religious cult. And so what we need is de to deprogram. And that's one reason why I'm kind of hesitant to use words like fascist or Christian Nazi because these things put us into conflict. And conflict is not what you need to deprogram people. So I blame the church. I blame the church for not providing a more persuasive and powerful theology that would keep these people out of idolatry and false prophecy. So the church is having a difficulty with all this misinformation and disinformation that's being spread by their members. And it's gonna be their responsibility to identify this stuff as idolatry and as false prophecy. And so that's one way that we can go, but we have to recognize that these people are so entrenched that just yelling at them is gonna make them go the other direction. So. Uh, we need to find some other way to communicate with these people. So Tom, Reverend Tom Megabean, you had a comment or question? Let me ask you to mute. Well, 
Hello, thank you. Uh, first of all, to uh, Alan and Bill, many, many thanks. And Rich, thank you for putting all of this together. So many good things. My, my question is very, very simple. It's, it's, it's to Bill. He mentioned nine steps, and uh, I am so grateful for him putting this together. But on my notes, I have eight. Okay. Uh, I, I can tell you what I've written so you don't have to go over all of them, or if you want to just quickly review them again, because I think they're terrible. Yeah, I, all right, I'll, I'll list them. I have voter suppression, which reaches back into history. Right. During the campaign, election disinformation, Trump telling us that either he wins or there's fraud. There's packing the courts, which goes back to the start of Trump's administration. That's three. Four, rhetoric and organizing after claiming victory or saying it was fraud. This is the stop the steal movement. Number five, lawsuits to overturn the results. Number six, pressure the states to get them to overturn their own results. Number seven, target Pence with an eye towards January 6th. Number eight is the insurrection itself, okay. which was long in planning. And number nine, okay. the goal is to put this yeah. election in the hands of the House so that we can have a repeat, not of Bush v. Gore, but of 1876, Tilden versus Hayes. The, uh, that's a very important point. And by just for myself, I had I had conflated eight and nine, oh, and I hadn't distinguished them as you, which rightly did. Uh, mentioning uh, the the end of re, quote unquote the end of Reconstruction, I've been reading a book by a gentleman by the name of Eric Foner called The Second Founding, and these elements have been present in the American DNA since the beginning, shall I say. And what was so, what's been so interesting about uh, Foner's books is in the power of victory, shall I say, after the Civil War with the passage of the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments. But it was the Supreme Court in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s that basically gutted all of these amendments. And one of the observations he had was how the 14th Amendment was grabbed by corporate interests. And the majority of lawsuits that came to before the Supreme Court were about corporations now being uh, eligible for the same rights, privileges, and protections that individuals were. And in some ways, uh, I, I'm very much grateful for how you uh, identified these, these nine steps. But in a sense, the, the forerunner of all of this was in reconstruction and the efforts of racists, white supremacists, Christians of various sorts, rich, and big business to undo the whole, the whole darn shebang. Anyway, my thanks. That was the when when we talk about voter suppression, when we talk about uh, Jim Crow. That's I put that all into step one. I mean, you could have many many more steps. But your focus on the Supreme Court and its work as an anti-democratic institution is spot on, culminating in Plessy versus Ferguson and economically in Lochner versus New York, which establishes this freedom of contract that Trump's 
not to use a bad word there, all other rights of, uh, uh, of working people. So it's a long, hard struggle to get the court to recognize uh, democratic rights and to um, defend them and extend them. And we had an, an, an interregnum, if you will, with the Warren Court and an expansion of human rights. That's the exception in American legal history. That's not the rule. I will ask just one question and everybody can weigh in on it. FDR wanted to enlarge the court. I'm not so sure that's the answer, but there are parts of me that sometimes think maybe that would help. Uh, I'd appreciate any commentary on the, the possibility of enlarging the court. Well, uh, I, I, I'll just offer a brief answer and then I'll turn it back to everybody else. The number of justices is not fixed by the Constitution, and it has varied uh, throughout the decades. So you could change it by by act of Congress. Uh, if you do, if you succeed in doing that, then you invite retaliation. That's the argument against it. Okay, very, very good. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. We have four people in the in line. So Dorothy. So I'll answer this question first. I'm very scared about the Supreme Court because what I think is we do not add people to the Supreme Court. When we pass a law, it's going to get challenged in Texas or someplace. We're going to we're going to lose a case. It's going to get bumped up eventually to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will, just, will decide that this law is is unconstitutional. And this could, these Republicans are ruthless that way. They they could do it to HR1, for God's sakes. So uh, I think we don't really have a choice about that. I was going to say a couple other things. First of all, I hope you all know about Vote Common Good, which is a group of evangelicals who are trying to counter the Trump evangelicals. If you don't know about them, I can get a link for you. Um, they've been going all around the country, and they've been on this case for a couple of years now. All right. Thank you, Dorothy. Yeah, I wanted to that Plessy v. Ferguson case, Bill, that's the case where it said that a black person is three fifths of a white person. Is that right? No, that's Dred, Dred Scott. Uh, okay. But Plessy is uh, separate but equal. Separate but equal. Separate but equal. OK, very good. All right. Dan. No, Hi, now, thank man. you very much. Thank you very much for uh, Alan for inviting me today. I'm from Middle America, so I grew up in a conservative family, conservative part of the country, and I know how a lot of these people think. And yeah, I think many people have not recovered from the 2008 crisis, and uh, now there's two more exasperating each other. And that, in my view, was, was, which is why uh, I was not surprised at all that uh, a group formed and stormed the Capitol. I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen sooner, to be honest with you. I mean, people are frustrated you know, economically. And I think since Occupy Wall Street, I think we have needed uh, a movement, an economic-based movement. But that first is going to require bringing coalitions of people together. I mean, progressives are going to have to not necessarily agree on everything because we don't but find ways of common ground, come together and create coalitions because it, it really is a working class thing. And there are a lot of conservative working class people that I know that probably voted for Trump. They were gonna vote for Bernie, many of them. And they're, they're focused on their you know, economic lives. 
that's what they're focused on. And they, they don't want to lose their health care, especially if it gets tied to their jobs, which they lose, which is you can't find that anywhere else in the world. We have the most, and I just can speak from personal experience in the last couple of months, we have an extraordinarily dysfunctional healthcare system as far as the administrative part. So I think we need a movement when, and we need to demand, make, need to make demands. And I know a lot of what's in the original Green New Deal from the Green Coalition of 2007. And there are definitely solutions in that, including Medicare for all, including uh, a stimulus for people uh, in a transition period, because we have to transition not only the energy systems, but the whole infrastructure of everything in society, socially and environmentally and everything. And that's going to that's going to require some political will. And uh, I'm working on creating coalitions. I do a lot of work with DSALA and uh, do have a media show in that broadcasts around the world now, streaming on the internet, Roku and Apple TV and Fire TV now too. So I want to do whatever I can. And I would put that out to the group. What about working on creating coalitions as PDA to address these, these, these issues with an economic-based movement that everyone should be able to connect to, at least in the 99.9%. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. And that's one of the things that I, I want to do is start a truth and democracy coalition in which we are fighting these struggles, both with the prop, uh, confronting the propaganda and fighting for our democratic rights and, and protecting the vote and all of that. So we've got some plans going ahead and we appreciate having you. All right, next up, human rights activists, French human rights activists, all the way from England, set, set please. So my first point, what I really want to say because it's a, it's a pod on democracy, is that for me, uh, Trump uh, embodies uh, plutocracy. And this could, for me, is, is where the fight here. I wanted to ask you a question because you are journalists. We talk a lot about fake news and uh, very un very understandable because uh, because uh, they may be everywhere. It's very threatening, in fact, because even when you are trying to be informed, to try to recoup sources and uh, takes. Uh, takes a hell of a time and uh, it's it's very unsettling me me I really admit uh, but um, what uh, shocks me even more is the, the lack of information in fact because we are we are also surrounding by uh, terrible terrible uh, topics such as uh, well such as human trafficking and, and so forth such so as the lack of information I would say or or trigger uh, against, for example, the fact that we are losing species and, and so forth. And I think that if you are not voluntary and actively searching for information, this is not really in the air. I mean, uh, for example, we've got Murdoch that has got a total monopoly on the press and that we, we know uh, that is uh, now famous denier of uh, cl climate change and so forth. So is the question is, uh, as journalists, uh, free is the press. I know that, for example, in France, uh, people are are really, really worried about 
less and less fundings for journalism. So less and less possibility for, for investigation. Also, uh, and this in France, huh, in, in, in country where you would think that uh, these people are kind of protected. Today, it's, it's very, you put yourself in a dire danger, uh, just uh, releasing some information uh, against corporation, for example. Famously, uh, journalists and, uh, and whistleblowers face trials with, uh, as sanction, like thousand and thousand uh, value of pounds or euros uh, for the fine. I mean, how comfortable are you with handling information, by the way? All right. Uh, Bill, do you have an answer for that? Because I know journalism is a very dangerous profession and journalists are being killed right now. And that's part of the attack on truth. And it's part of the attack on democracy. And so- well, This is a huge topic. Yes. <laughs> I, I, first of all, journalists have to be protected. No question about it. As far as promoting truth goes, I think it's, it depends on how you go about that. I don't want to see government in the position of determining what's true and what's not true in the United States, because depending upon what government you have, you're going to suppress and um, tamp down the opposing point of view. Having said that, I think that the, the, the kind of suppression that I see in the United States comes less from government than it does from the big private mainstream media carriers themselves. And it's a sort of su suppression that is one of, we're just not gonna publish your ideas because we don't think your ideas are well-developed. We don't think your ideas are important or we don't think a particular author is a particularly good writer. I think that's starting to change a little bit, but I think one way that we counter disinformation is the promotion of independent media. And I think that there is a big appetite for independent media, but you are going to, and I mean places like Truth Digital and like Salon and like Slate, there are plenty of places that do discuss ideas and do report on important topics. Another uh, outlet would be ProPublica. I think they do great work. Truthouts, another uh, website that does terrific work. But we don't uh, hear about them that much. I think that it's important for people to share those different sorts of websites together. But I, I'm not a fan of um, government-imposed restrictions on speech, except insofar as speech you know, crosses the line uh, you know, we have this clear and present danger test. We have the the imminent incitement to violence test, and, we, and those are those are going to come up in these seditious in these sedition cases uh, involving January six. Where does speech give way to a call for imminent violent action, such that it no longer deserves a constitutional protection? So these are all really very difficult questions. And I think that there are certain very good tools out there in the law now that have to be used better. And, and I'd be open to 
hearing about new tools that can be created to promote truth. But I'm a civil libertarian when it comes to free speech. I belong to the ACLU. I've worked with the ACLU. I've, you know, I've been on cases with the ACLU when I was a lawyer. So I very much am committed to their idea of free speech. I do think we can do a lot to get money out of politics because I think that perverts free speech in the context of elections. So there are things that we can do and things that we probably ought not to put a lot of energy behind. But I am a big proponent of independent media. I work with independent media. And the idea behind that is the best antidote to disinformation is information. And then it's a question of how you get the message out. I, I very agree uh, with you on free speech because uh, uh, even for uh, liter literature and, and so forth, yes, uh, human has imagination and uh, why not? I mean, the reality is complex and so forth, but uh, it's not as such as uh, freedom of press in, uh, in saying that uh, if someone uh, managed to to as a monopoly of, of press, which which you, you said it, which is a pillar, a pillar of democracy, yes. And uh, and it's and it's true, it's about information. Someone who manage we would manage and who have a right to say that uh, climate change doesn't exist. I mean, what it where the, you can draw the line? And um, you know, I, I think this this kind of manipulation of the truth, of the reality, of what everything one can see and felt, everything that we can see, we can see it with our own eyes, and not it is denied. So where do you draw a line? And I think that what happened with Trump is that. This government and this state and this structure, but uh, but yes, is supposed to defend pe people at least. Yes, I mean, never draw, draw a line on on what what has been said, and what that has been done. I mean, me, I think that what politics do, but in five minutes of discourse, we know that they are lying. We know that they are hiding the realities on the ground and so forth. Is giving blueprint to their people and just give boundaries on what it is possible to say or what it is possible to do, basically. If you deny, if you deny what uh, the, the industries and uh, you can deny everything else. Yes, All right, I'm, thank it's not, it's, It was not a freedom of expression question, mm -hmm. type of question. Thank you, Civites. We, uh, we have three other people in the queue, so Robin, Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself there. Well, actually, um, my name is Robin Day, not Robin. Robin Day. Okay, sorry. Hi, Robin Day. Sorry my about that. My sister is Robin. Oh, okay. Thank you, um, Robin Day. I am I want to give you a little bit of background so you can understand where I'm coming from. I I'm a native New Yorker who grew up in an advertising publishing family. And my father was a winner of the Polk Award for opposing McCarthyism. Publishing was considered to be a noble profession in my family. Uh, what's left from all of that to me are two passions. One is that I really believe in freedom of the press, 
And although many of the issues are not clear cut, it's still a value that I think we need to preserve. And the other is that in my, in my view, one of the most effective ways in which we can advance democratic and progressive values is through marketing. Now, I'm sure that some people in this group would use another term for that and call it diplomacy or um, persuasion. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just plain ordinary marketing. I think we need to figure out what our product is and then market it better. That's my view in teacup. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Yes, we need counter propaganda to counter the propaganda. So Mark, you're up next. Well, this is addressing that issue of things that we can do to promote democracy. And I'm not sure we may have already covered that issue. That ship may have sailed. But I heard some people talking about the Supreme Court rather than adding more justices to the Supreme Court, maybe we should set term limits of 10 years on the justices or 15 or 20, some other limit on their on the term of service. So then, and then you always have each president's four-year term, an opportunity to replace one justice or perhaps two. And then you eliminate you eliminate the problem of justices being appointed to the bench for life, and then some of them serving for 30 or 35 years. And you also eliminate the problem of presidents trying to intentionally nominate younger justices who are less experienced to the Supreme Court when you really should be nominating older ones that are more experienced and have them serve less time. Now, from a practical standpoint, how you would do that, it would involve changing the constitution, I guess, and how we could do that, I don't really know. I mean, I do like the idea of the popular electoral um, vote compact with the states. That's certainly a good thing. But um, I believe the states decide how to allocate their electoral votes individually. Is that true? I think each state determines how they they allocate their electoral votes. And at least two, Maine and New Hampshire, do not have an all or nothing system. They, They can actually have a few, one or more electoral votes go to one candidate and the remaining votes go to a different candidate. So that just seems like a system we should institute in all 50 states. I mean, then you would have states like Michigan, Ohio, Georgia, maybe, that are deeply divided and have 10 electoral votes. Pennsylvania is a good example, and I think it has 20. Then if you have five more Democratic votes in Michigan, then Republican votes for the candidate, instead of having the entire state go to all 10 electoral votes to the Democrat, then five go to the Democrat and five go to the Republican. So what do you think, Bill? 
So it's uh, Maine and Nebraska that, that split. Nebraska has that one district which tends to vote Democratic. Uh, let me de deal with the Supreme Court because the, the, the proposals around um, changing the direction of the Supreme Court do include term limits. And some of the proposals are very, very well-developed and sophisticated. And some of the people behind the, the push for term limits include Erwin Chemerinsky, who's the dean at uh, Bolt Law School. So these ideas have been thought through and the way that it would be done generally is that you would have 18 year terms for each justice. After that, they would go on something called senior status so that they would still maintain their position for life during good behavior as provided for in the constitution. And theoretically, you wouldn't need a constitutional amendment because otherwise you're talking about something that's really, really long and involved and probably not going to happen. So term limits, that's on the table. People are proposing that. And it, the more developed proposals include provisions that would allow every president to get to appoint someone to the, to the bench. And they vary from you know, many different proposals out there, so I don't want to overgeneralize. As far as the other question, the uh, Electoral College goes, yes, the states de determine, uh, they, they, they run their own elections, they certify their electoral votes, they can carve up their states uh, into different electoral college districts, as is done in Maine and Nebraska. But every state, I think South Carolina was the last, which uh, to, uh, they all now allocate electoral votes based on the popular vote within their jurisdictions. That doesn't mean they can't carve up and do some sort of proportionality. You know, that's an idea that's out there. I don't know how popular that is at the present time. But uh, the Electoral College is one of the vestiges that the founders left us from the late 18th century, and it's terribly, terribly anachronistic. We'd be much better served by having the president elected by a national popular vote, because the president, after all, is unique in that the president is a servant of all the people. President represents everybody, not like a senator, not like a House uh, member. And there's very good reason for the president to be elected nationally. That won't happen without a constitutional amendment. So this interstate compact probably is the best way to go, but that requires states to join the compact. And then I think, you know, you have the problem of, okay, Arizona is going blue, so maybe we'll join the compact, but then if the Republicans take over again, they'll withdraw from the compact. So this is one avenue that could possibly alter the uh, bad results of the Electoral College because we are seeing more and more elections where a candidate with uh, a minority of the popular vote gets to be elected president. And you know, this last election, although Biden won nationally by 7 million votes, the, the votes in all these really close states, Arizona, uh, Georgia, Wisconsin, they were really close, within 20,000 votes in those three states, bigger margins in Michigan and Pennsylvania. But um, 
lot needs to be done. So there's a lot to put together for an agenda, a progressive agenda. And I think, you know, people are doing it. Okay, so we're we're running behind, uh, we're running late. So we've got um, Joseph Dowd, Professor Dowd, you wanted to um, say something else? Okay, yeah, I already got to talk, so I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, you know, I, I appreciated the the responses to my initial question, but I, I, I wasn't just asking how we can try to scoop up some more working class votes or how Democrats can scoop up some more working class votes. I was, I, I mean, I, I was also asking, I mean, how can we kind of motivate or, or empower uh, people who maybe um, are working class or maybe don't have a college education, empower more of them to, to take a kind of an active role or maybe even leadership roles among progressives. Because, you know, I don't think we want a, a situation, I mean, I don't think we want a situation where like liberals or progressives, they're only being led by college educated kind of white collar types. I mean, for, to get, give an obvious example, right? The, if, if you're gonna have a, a labor movement in a country, then you'd, you'd want that movement to be led by working class people of that country, right? And so that 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 was that was another kind of prong to my question. You know how how can we not just how can we scoop up more votes, but how can we really uh, kind of enthuse right uh, working class people who you know the the left is supposed to be on the side of, but supposed to represent right, supposed to care about. You know these are the people we're supposed to care. How, how can we get them to to take a more proactive role within the Democratic Party or you know, within progressivism in general. I, I will take a stab at that again. I appreciate coming back to it. I mean, the only thing I'll say, first of all, of course, um, you know, obviously, you know, first of all, I'm in Gen X, I'm a Gen Xer. Um, I don't know if people have looked at the voting trends around, around Gen Xers, but it's been wretched, okay? And I think we saw a very conspicuous gap in terms of left progressive leadership from Bernie Sanders down to AOC, skipping my generation. We all know that baby boomers had a great history of radical activism in their generation going back to the 1960s and innumerable people from that generation remain engaged, not just with the political left, but with the electoral political left. In my generation, again, I did, was privileged to go, I'm um, from a middle-class household, but privileged to go to uh, elite college. Very few radicals that I knew got involved in electoral politics in my generation. And then not, not inconspicuously, the protest movements that were sparked by Gen Xers like the WTO demonstrations in Seattle on to Occupy were very non-hierarchical, extremely disengaged from electoral party politics. And I think there was a great sense of alienation among left Gen Xers towards the Democratic Party, the working class and the progressive left. Okay, there's incredible wealth inequality in the society. Most people in the society are not in the 1%, of course, 90% of the population isn't. 90% of the population is outside of the top 10%. If you're 40 and under in the United States right now, if the election was determined by people 40 and younger, Bernie Sanders would have won the landslide. In fact, I think Bernie Sanders would have won the Democratic Party nomination and the national election comfortably if it's 50 and under. Okay, now among the people who were supporting Bernie Sanders, if you went to Bernie Sanders rallies in the past two election cycles, they were packed with young people, almost overwhelmingly not from the 1%, 10%, or top 25% of, of the um, uh, economic balance sheet. And uh, a lot of the people from uh, that are leaders in the progressive movements across the country are from 
the broad working class. Uh, Sanders did very well in 2016 when the when even though in a sense he came closer this time to winning than he did last time. We all know that 2016 was much more drawn out, and so there were more states where the race was competitive between Hillary Clinton and Bernie. And Bernie did incredibly well in a number of red states. He crushed it in West Virginia. In West Virginia, there were very little presence of the national 1%, 10% or top 25% of the election. And the people who came out of the Sanders movement as progressive leaders in all of these states were again, younger, they skewed younger and they are of the working class. So I don't think it's quite as dire as it looks, especially when you start looking at age demographics. Okay, in so fact, some hope for my generation in other ways. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Your generation <laughs> so, gets like mine did not, okay? But it's a huge country and there's a lot of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of even progressive Gen Xers. It's a big country. But um, yeah, real hope there. And the, yeah, the number of, the amount of youth activism between the climate and coming off of the success of Sanders movements. And even, you know, there was some, some grassroots support, not a lot for some of the other candidates, but they also are, are mixing in. You look at Working Families Party that supported Warren. Uh, their, their rank and file is pretty young too. Thank you, everybody. And I'm going to have another meeting, hopefully next month. And we're going to be developing a pro-democracy movement in the United States. And uh, so, Stay in touch with everybody. And thank you very much, Bill and Alan, for being here. You were both great, fantastic comments from everybody. Thank you, everybody. So remember, our first assignment is HR1, call your rep, and support Nancy Pelosi's Truth Commission. Those are our two things we're going to do this month. And also, all the other stuff PDA does and all the stuff you guys all, all do. I appreciate it. So thank you very much, everybody, for coming. Thank you. Great job. Bye now. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.